it's Dermot here and welcome back to Rupture Radio. We are currently in the final weeks of production for Rupture Issue 7 and so things are a little hectic. Given that, we have decided to repost a great interview which our friends over at the Irish Left Archive did with Rupture contributor and RISE national organiser Jess Spear. I'll transition to the interview shortly, but just a bit of housekeeping before I let you go. I'll just highlight that the aforementioned next issue of Rupture will be out at the end of April. The theme is work, and it will feature many great articles on topics such as the four-day work week, working conditions during and after COVID, and reproductive labour. Keep an eye out for it, and as always, you can pick up a subscription at the link below. Another thing to mention is Rise, which produces Rupture Radio and Rupture Magazine, will be running an eco-socialist summer camp in Glendalough from the 12th to the 15th of August. You can sign up online and I'll leave a link to more information below. As for today's episode, we're very thankful to the Irish Left Archive for letting us repost this great interview. I would encourage all listeners to take a look at the link below and check out their other great interviews with great activists. Okay, I'll go to the episode now. Cheers. Thanks very much, Jess, for, for coming on and talking to us. To start, maybe you can tell us a bit about uh, what brought you into political activism and your, your sort of first political experiences. Yeah, I mean, it's funny. I grew up in and around the D.C. metropolitan area. Um, my family is from Northern Virginia. And I, I can remember being quite a young child and like seeing homeless people on the street and being like, what's that? You know, and I think all young people kind of go through that because I remember my nieces and nephews also going through that with me and being like, why is there somebody without a home? Um, And I remember that always sticking out for me. And then I think I was about eight or nine years old when the first Iraq war happened. Um, And I just remember at the time being like, there's war? What? You know, you just just so innocent as a young person living in the United States, you know, obviously young people in countries that experience war incessantly um, don't have that experience. But as a young person, I was just like, oh my God, how is this a thing today? You know, it's, you just think it's something that's happened long, long ago and we've moved on beyond that. Um, But it was really, you know, when I was around 17, 18, years old and I was in college at the time um, that I became to be politically active in that sense. Um, And the two main issues for me were, you know, war and climate change. My first protest would have been, you know, that global day of action against the Iraq war where millions of people were, you know, taking to the streets to say, don't go to war. Um, I was in college at the time. I was at this tiny little all women's liberal arts college in Southern Virginia. Um, And our march probably was, I don't know, 50 of us. There's only like 700 on campus. So 50 was quite quite a sizable group of us. Um, And we, you know, we're just marching around our tiny little campus and then out onto the street. But for me, you know, it was the first time that I had actually participated in some sort of action. And I was with people who felt the same way that I was, you know, it was horrifying watching a drumbeat for war and then also the devastation that came after, you know, you just feel really hopeless in that situation when you're kind of alone in your opposition and you're isolated from other people who oppose it. Um, So that was the first action that I was involved in. Um, And then at the same time, you know, I was studying ecology in college and then I went on to study climate science in graduate school. And then, you know, just throughout that time, throughout college and graduate school, I was just desperate, 
you know, to try to understand how we could change the world. Um, because just like the more you pay attention to the destruction of lives and the destruction of ecosystems, um, the more you just feel this sense of like wanting to scream at the top of your lungs and pull your hair out at like all the destruction. And you have all these adults around you, these adults, you know, telling you that, oh, this is just the way the world is and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, you just kind of have to put your head down and, you know, eke out a living or whatever. And I just didn't believe that that could be because like you learn history, lots has changed. So, you know, for me, the real question was war and climate change, but just the fact that people didn't have what they needed and they should, and those things just never made sense to me and always compelled me to try to figure out, well, how could we, how could we change that? Was, was there a politically active base in a, an organized way inside the liberal arts college you went to at all? I, I have no idea. That's really? the thing. I have no idea. It wasn't, wow. it wasn't visible in a sense, or at least for me, it wasn't clear that you joined something, yeah. you know? Um, and perhaps I just wasn't ready at that moment. Um, that's the thing about political awakening is that you don't even know when you're taking your first steps. You just take your first steps. Yeah. And so it was only after that you began to think maybe in more organized structure or or maybe not at all, like once you'd moved on, once you graduated. Yeah, I mean, I was living in Florida when I went to graduate school. And like the key question for me even if I didn't like articulate it in my head, I wasn't conscious of it. it was just like, how can we make the destruction stop? You know? Um, and like when I was in graduate school and learning about climate change, it's just increasing fear about what's going to happen in my lifetime to me and my family and everyone. And at that time, I don't even remember how it happened actually, but at that time I read a lot of Noam Chomsky. I think I found him on MySpace. Funny <laughs> now with Facebook going down and people talking about Bebo was not a thing for Americans, but my face was like the thing. Um, but I read a lot of Noam Chomsky and then that led me to Howard Zinn. Um, and I'm not sure if Irish people would be aware of Howard Zinn, but the people's history of the US was like a huge yeah. eye-opener for me, you know? Yeah. Um, because within that, you kind of learn what is the answer to how we can change the world. And that's of course mass movements of working and oppressed people. Um and so for me, like the next question was, okay, how do you build a movement? How do I get involved in the movement? You know, how do you get involved? And this would have been like 2006, 2007. And in the US where I was living in Florida at the time, there just wasn't anything to join. There weren't any big movements at the time. Um, and so I was just as active as I could be, or at least in the ways that I felt I could be active. So I would have been an active like um, in campaigns to stop offshore drilling in the Gulf of Mexico, demand green jobs from the Obama administration, but like there wasn't really anything you could join. And so it wasn't until 2011 where I was living in Seattle at that time, I had just moved there, um, that I finally met activists from Socialist Alternative in Seattle at Occupy. And I got involved in building the socialist movement from that day forward. And actually, in three days, it'll be 10 years from the day that I signed up to get involved. It'll be my 10-year anniversary in the socialist movement. <laughs> yeah. Sense. But like, even then, even when I went to the, to the stall, we call them tables in America, and like, there were loads of books all over the table. And I was just looking and browsing as you do, because you have no idea what, what you're doing there. You just want to be there. And there was a pushy person behind the table that was like, what got you interested in socialist ideas? And I was like, oh, I don't want to answer this question. Leave me alone, you know? Um, but the more they kind of prodded, they sold me one of their newspapers. 
I wasn't interested to buy them, do you know? And they yeah. asked, put your name down if you're interested to learn a bit more. And I did. And then that led to a phone, a phone call and discussions. And, you know, pretty soon I was calling myself a socialist and then a Marxist and then just took off from there. Wow. And the socialist alternative, that's, that was CWI related, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Did you find yourself... I mean, were you, were you looking around at the time at, at green movements or or was it sort of a direct line into eco-socialism? No. Um, by about 2011, right before the Arab Spring broke out, I was pretty demoralized um, because you just didn't see anything happening. And all you see is an accumulation of knowledge that things really need to be changed, but not the forces coalescing to actually have it be changed. And so I just, yeah, I don't know. Um, I wasn't looking at, you know, when 2011 hit and then the Arab Spring hit. And then I remember sitting in my office and being like, oh my God, you know, and then the uprising in Wisconsin and then Occupy Wall Street. Like I can vividly remember standing in my kitchen watching Democracy Now!, which is a, a left-wing news show, um, which I highly recommend. It's really good. Um, and they were reporting from Zuccotti Park. And like, I just remember crying, just being like, there's the movements there. I can be involved. Where's the Occupy here in Seattle? And, you know, and then finding out the Global Day of Action was on the 15th of October. And then you could go down there. And that was like, that's how you get involved. You just go. And I, I didn't realize that you join organizations. I didn't realize that, like, you know, then you help build an organization. I just that wasn't clear to me. And I think it isn't clear to a lot of people who, like, become politicized as those on the left call it like you're just not clear what you're meant to do in order to join in and contribute and do your bit. Yeah, the the number of people who seem to join parties almost by accident. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's amazing, and exactly yeah. what, what you're painting is a picture in a sense of very deep not well maybe depoliticized is wrong, but it sounds like a very depoliticized environment in the sense of. You know, I think people here would be reasonably aware of political parties. I'm sure they are in the US as well, the Democrats and the Republicans and, and I guess to an extent, the Green Party and, and other formations. But it almost sounds like everything is structured in a way to almost divert attention away from political activity and, OK, maybe into campaigns to an extent. But I mean, would you say that is part and parcel of that broader dynamic or is that is it a intended byproduct or is it... Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, I would never have considered joining the Democratic Party because it's not a party that has a membership or anything like that. It's not democratic in any sense. It's not like political parties in Europe. Um, And so it's just so you would have supported a Democrat or something like that. Um, I never campaigned for one or anything like that. Um, Not that like I think it's some sin if I did, but I didn't. And I didn't think to join the Green Party. To me, and the Green Party was Ralph Nader, like who was a popular figure. But at the time when he was a big figure, it wasn't the environment that seemed the, the Green Party to me didn't seem to represent the environment. And I certainly didn't search it out to figure out more about it. Um, it was more of how do I get involved in local issue based campaigns um, and how do you help build those campaigns and build awareness? And I would have been quite an awful liberal at the time before I became a socialist and thought, well, just everybody needs to get educated, you know, and like, how do I help educate people? <laughs> just, um, so I wouldn't have been aware um, that you join something and there, there really wouldn't have been like um, any type of organization that had a profile or anything like that. And I do think it was quite a depoliticized time when I was 
getting quite active. I mean, when you talk to socialists today who were organizing in the 90s and the 2000s, um, they always talk about that as being one of the most difficult periods. Um, so I'm sure that's a, that's a reflection of it. And what I experience is, is an expression of that. Yeah. Did, when you went in social alternative, I presume then it was complete culture change in a sense. Yeah. yeah, it was. And it's interesting, too, because when I went to graduate school and when I worked at the U.S. Geological Survey, I certainly would have been known by all of my colleagues and friends as like the most political person and probably to an annoying degree. I'm sure I was annoying, um, but to the point where like even somebody recommended I didn't get hired because I was just ultra liberal, as she called me, and wouldn't get on with people. And so in sciences at that time, and thankfully it's changed a lot. You just you're not supposed to be very political. You're meant to be objective and you're not meant to have, especially in climate research. Um, and so you kind of you didn't feel like you could be outspoken in that arena. Um, but by 2011, like, you know, and I left the U.S. Geological Survey and then I was working at the Burke Museum. Um, it just it had changed so much for me at that point because something had opened up and I just cared a lot less, um, became even more politicized and even more open about my politics. And, and you didn't get any pushback from employers then, like when you were with the Burke or, yeah, yeah. No, no. And the interesting thing is like, I took a leave of absence in 2013 from the Burke Museum. And I remember at the time, my um, supervisor, she was just like, no, what you're doing is so much more important, you know, um, and totally supportive. Yeah. Because yeah. it's funny what you're saying there, I get new scientists or scientific American. It's amazing how, if you compare and contrast across 10 years, what you're saying is so true. The level of political awareness now in scientific American is streets ahead of what it was 10 years ago, across a whole range of issues, gender, um, climate, climate science, etc. And, and poverty. Yeah. Class. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's shocking, actually. Within the last two years, I think, the, the, the impact that BLM has had, the impact that Me Too has had, on the sciences has been like not earth shattering or anything like a lot of it can be kind of on the surface. Mm. There are a lot of scientists that are a lot more open about their views on these things whenever I think previously they wouldn't have been or wouldn't have felt the confidence to do so. Um, and that's the ripple effect that these movements end up having that have lasting impacts. And the bigger the movement, the bigger like you have a shakeup within the sciences and within all areas of society. But yeah, it's, it's, it's wonderful to see within the sciences and all these former or not former, but all these climate scientists, friends and colleagues that I have, like, and how much more open they are. And I'm like, ah, I used to be open like that. <laughs> no, <laughs> but yeah, it's good to see. You also ran for social alternative in Washington for the Washington state house. in yeah. Seattle, Is that correct? Yeah. In the 43rd district, that'd be about 2015 or so. Yeah, it was in 2014, actually. Um, oh, sorry. No, no, it's okay. It's funny because um, when I joined Social Alternative in late 2011, the very next year, we had decided to run Shama Sawant, mm. who was the first Socialist City Council member elected in like 100 years in 2013. So we ran her in 2012 for the person that I ran against in 2014. And she didn't win, but she did phenomenally well. Um, so much better than anybody would have expected. Um, and then when we ran her again in 2013 for the city council position and we won, like it was just, it was earth shattering for Washington state politics and for Seattle politics, just because just 250 activists and socialist alternative at that time, you know, spread across a continent sized country, you know, maybe 30 activists within Seattle around that campaign, plus some volunteers. I mean, we had 
400 volunteers in that campaign. I don't want to make it seem like it was a tiny campaign. It was a real um, professionally run campaign. I was a volunteer organizer for that campaign. Um, but it was it was hugely inspiring to be a part of that. And then right after that, we launched a campaign called 15 Now, um, which was a grassroots initiative to kind of push from below the $15 minimum wage demand that was central to Shama Sawant's first run. And I was the organizing director and spokesperson for that. And probably, I didn't realize it at the time, but I'm sure in social alternative, they're like, let's give her some experience and then we'll run her. <laughs> no idea. I was just happy to keep contributing and keep, you know, learning how to be a good organizer and work with people within the community and all of that. Um, and so after we won, which was in mid 2014, we decided, oh, we'll launch this campaign um, very late in the year to be launching a campaign and running against the Speaker of the House. Um, and yeah, it was interesting because at that time, the media did not ignore it like they had uh. with Shama's campaigns. Because you have this tiny little revolutionary socialist organization running somebody, psh, not going to pay any attention to that, you know, and then she wins. And so when I run, there's a huge amount of media attention because they don't want to miss it again. If there's another upset victory, they, they want to be paying attention. So that was an interesting campaign. That one, yeah. <laughs> the 2014 election campaign. Yeah. Would you, did it, did it whet your appetite for that sort of like that, the electoral side or did it just say, no, don't want to do that? No, yeah. it did not whet my appetite. I'll just say very bluntly, like I hated being a candidate. <laughs> I really, really hate it. Um, I, I just, I guess I'd say like, it's, it's very, I find it very hard and I'm sure a lot of women find it very hard to be in the spotlight. Um, it's very hard not to let things get to you and to try to see the bigger picture of like, you're in this organization and this campaign is, has lots of different important roles and you're a key aspect of that campaign being the candidate, but you're not the only person within this campaign. Um, you're not the only person working hard or whatever, like we're all working together to make this campaign what it is, all the demands that we're formulating, all the things that we're saying. But nonetheless, you're like the person in the front, your face is on the posters, ugh. and you're, you know, you're the one that has to go and like <laughs> be in the media and stuff like that. And it's just, it's really, really challenging. It's difficult. Um, and it's, and it was really hard also to be constantly compared to Shama Sawant, who is an exceptionally good activist and revolutionary socialist politician. I mean, she, she just is, you know? Um, and then, you know, you just, you're being compared to somebody. It just, it was awful. Um, but I, and just the other side of it, I guess, is U.S. politics are extremely focused on the person and less on the party. And in, in Ireland, you have that too, um, but not as much. Um, it's just, yeah, I don't know. We tried to make the most of the, of like, a focus on me, you know, by talking about my background in climate science and making that a central part of the campaign. Like one of the demands we had in the campaign was for a fossil fuel free uh, Washington state. Um, and we initiated like a coalitions for a people's climate march. We, you know, it was really successful in that respect. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I didn't enjoy, I didn't enjoy the campaign. I guess the best part of the campaign, just to say something positive, was I did like the debates. I did three debates against my opponent. Um, and you just, I don't know, you kind of channel all the anger and frustration you have at the system and make it the responsibility of the person that's like holding up the status quo and defending all the crappy bits or whatever, you know. Um, and yeah, that was the best part. But then you know, there were not very many of those. So, did you find, you know, having 
been ignored in one campaign that there was more hostility then to your campaign well if we can't ignore them there was a bit more of an attack in the public discourse or in the yeah, media yeah it was or... interesting in that um so there's an alternative newspaper in seattle called the stranger and it's a liberal newspaper and um, but in 2012 in order to kind of like smack the speaker of the house across the head for not using their democratic majorities they decided to endorse shama sawant um, and it's a big deal when they make their endorsement because they have like election cheat sheets that people who don't pay a huge amount of attention to local politics use in their voting. So their endorsements really, really matter. Um, but when it came to my election, they were like, oh, no, we've got one socialist there. Now we don't want her. She's not good. And, you know, then they just flip the script and no longer do they want a firebrand, no longer do they want those kinds of things. And then they use all sorts of nasty reasons about how I'm not a savvy, blah, 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 you know? Um, so there was that. Um, and then the unions as well, like, you know, um, we were in a coalition with the trade unions for the $15 minimum wage. But, you know, I'd say they weren't the happiest to have us there. You know, you have a radical left wing of a coalition really saying we should have quite a militant approach here. We should have quite a militant strategy and they don't want to push things too far. You know, they want to keep some relationships within City Hall. Um, and so they kept a wide berth from my campaign um, didn't endorse in the way they would have Shamas in 2013. And so it just it was frustrating in that respect. Um but, you know, there were lots of community organizations that supported, like the main thing for that campaign was actually rent control. The housing emergency, like it is all over the world and has been for a long time, was a, was a central issue facing most people and was the main thing that they cared about. Um, so we would have had community organizations support it in that respect. But yeah, the, um, the, the media scrutinized it in a way that they didn't previously with Shama's campaigns. And then the trade union organizations and, you know, the likes, the NGOs that you would think would support our campaign actually end up lining up behind the opponent because the opponent will give them promises. They'll raise legislation, blah, blah, blah. So. So it sounds like maybe the silent campaign was, had managed to get a bit more of a broad left backing then in that case and less focused on the socialist uh, alternative visit. Yeah. And I would say even like, in 2012 and 2013, like the other socialist organization within Seattle would have been the, the ISO, um, which I think originally comes from the SWP, but they split off from the SWP at a certain moment. And actually they dissolved a few years ago, but um, they kind of were just like, this is just some rinky dink campaign because we were tiny compared to the ISO. Yeah. The ISO, I think had a thousand members nationally when we had 250. Um, and we asked for their endorsement and their assistance with the campaigns, but they were just kind of like, you're just another little socialist organization running another candidate or whatever. And there are lots of socialists that run, you know, locally and also for president and stuff, you know. So there is some truth to that. But at the same time, like, you know, um, they didn't materially assist or anything like that. They were friendlier in 2013 and 2014. Um, but they just, yeah. It wasn't a broad coalition, as you say. It wasn't anything like that. It was mostly socialist alternative driving it and volunteers and supporters. Did after that, what I mean, obviously still involved in socialist alternative. Um, did other campaigns come to the fore after that for you while you're still in the US? Or, you know, I mean, was there anything that struck as particularly important during that period before you came to Ireland? Yeah, I mean, it was 24, yeah, 2014 was the People's Climate March. 
400,000 people in New York City marching, and we had a coalition and organized one of 2,000, which was quite big. I mean, it was just amazing. It was the largest climate action since, um, I think, a year prior. There were 50,000 people out or something like that. And then you had the also you had other marches in other cities globally as well. That was a major um major advancement and like movements getting built and then infrastructures developing frameworks and networks developing and activists kind of seeing themselves as activists. And then, you know, there's a certain um activist uh layer that I think starts to develop, right? Over time. And that builds on itself. And then Bernie Sanders running 2015, 2016. That was phenomenal time. Um, Socialist Alternative initiated March marches for Bernie. We initiated um, an independent campaign called Movement for Bernie. Mm-hmm. We didn't want to be too close to the Democratic Party, um, but really wanted to tap into the energy around Bernie Sanders, support his campaign, but also point out the limitations of running within the Democratic Party and all of that. So that was just phenomenal. And I moved to Ireland in 2017. And actually the very last action that I was involved in before I moved here was organizing um, uh, a rally after Trump was elected the very next day. Um, uh, Not my president was the name of it. And we'd organize them all around the country. And like, I think we had like six or 7,000, mostly young people, mostly young women out on the streets. And like, we didn't have any stewards. In Seattle, you can just take to the street. Like you, you don't need a permit or anything like that. You just take to the street if you've got the numbers. Um, and I was like, oh my God, you're just trying to hold back this mostly youthful, mostly women and non-binary crowd who are like just so angry and upset. Um, you just don't want them to be hit by a car or anything, you know. But that was the last protest that I was involved in before I moved here. So I wasn't in the U.S. for the entire Trump administration. Um, I moved here right before that. Did you have a sense in that proceeding? Well, I mean, from the time that the Trump candidacy was announced, did you have a sense of how things might go? Did you have a sense of the genuine reactionary nature of what was, or more reactionary nature of what was coming up? Or did it surprise you even still to see how things were going? Yeah, I'd say yes and no. <laughs> In a sense of like, yeah, we were surprised. I think anybody on the left who was like, ah, we knew it would happen. I think they're lying. I don't believe that. And I think if you go back and look at the record of socialist organizations, people were not predicting that Trump was going to win or anything like that. Um, it was just an awful night watching that happen. Uh, but at the same time, if you paid attention to what he was saying, and we were paying attention to what he was saying, he was talking about building a workers' party. You know, he was railing at the establishment. He was saying all the things that Bernie Sanders was from a right wing perspective and pointing yeah. down rather than up or punching down rather than punching. up. And so you would meet people um, during the election that were either for Bernie Sanders or Trump. You'd meet people like that, you know, who were like in the primaries. I voted for Bernie Sanders, but he's not there. So I'm voting for Trump. So you got glimpses of what was to be. Um But also, I think a lot of people misread the election and thought there was a working class revolt, a working class anti-establishment revolt. Whenever I think now that the dust has settled and a lot of people have analyzed things, it looks more middle class. It looks, you know, um, in that sense and less like very poor and oppressed white people revolting. The the other thing I should say, it's funny because there's so many things that happened during that period, you can forget them. But 2012 was the birth of the Black Lives Matter movement, Um, you know, when Trayvon Martin was killed. 
and there the initial protests around that were not as big as they 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 were um in the US but like in the last year but they they were big and they were the first eruption of the black freedom movement in decades um and to be a part of that and to witness that was incredible because when you're on a protest that is mostly black young people and black activists um is policed very differently than when you're on an environmental protest, even when you're looking to block a train or something like that, which we did, you know, um, and you start to get some sense. You can know it, you know, you can have an analysis of it, being a Marxist and all of that, but it's a different thing to live it alongside others who are experiencing it day in and day out. Um, and it was incredible to see that movement challenge the um, Bernie Sanders campaign in 2015 and 2016 and see the impact of that on on the uh, presidential election platforms and all of that coming out of it. And the iterations of Black Lives Matter that erupted when you had more and more um, Black men and women get gunned down by the police uh, and see it growing, you know, over time to the point where I mean, my dad, at the last time that it was big on the streets, I guess 2019, it's hard, because pandemic, to kind of remember the when these these things happen. But I remember my dad like being like, I need to go down to the Black Lives Matter protests. And he lives in a little rural area in Maryland, you know, um, just it reached every corner of U.S. society because it was such a powerful movement. But it built up over years. And I think if you weren't around you wouldn't have known that. And so, yeah. yeah, there was a lot that happened during that period. Yeah. And me too, as you say, and also like an awareness of LGBTQ rights, you know, I mean that then um, trans rights and so forth, you know, just, it's been incredibly busy in a sense and, and active. And in 2013, there was actually the first trans pride in um, Seattle. It was the first, you know, we have a weekend of pride in Seattle. Yeah. And 2013 was the first trans pride. Um, and I remember we went with a banner that said, ding dong, Doma's dead, onward to trans equality. Doma was, you know, kind of like <laughs> marriage act. Yeah. Um, and I remember the the trans activists that were there and um, trans people there come over to this, like, are you guys for real? Like, do you really exist? Or Because it was Shama Swan's campaign. They were like, you really running for office and you have this banner. Because not yet had trans rights become quite a widespread, understood discussion um, amongst American working class people. Um, and so it was interesting to watch that development as well. You're right. There's a lot of things that happened, like the Women's March as well. It was 120,000 people marching in Seattle alone. It was the biggest march I'd ever been on. And then you came to Ireland. Yeah, and then I came to Ireland. <laughs> Which in its own way was pretty busy during that four or five years as well i know i was a bit sad to miss the water charges movement yeah like i came at the tail end of it um uh but repeal was yeah massive and it and hugely inspiring coming from the u.s where abortion is kind of like oh well you know you might have to get one and if you have to get one then like oh you want to make sure it's safe and nobody wants one whereas here conversation was nope it's healthcare. You're going to need to have one and we want to make sure, you know what I mean? Like in late term abortions also were a commonly discussed thing. Um, and so it was just um, phenomenal. The women's movement and the repeal movement here in Ireland um, it really opened my eyes to a different way of struggling for abortion rights compared to what I had seen in the U.S. What was the focus of your interest at that point and, and your activism then uh, when you arrived? 
I mean, when I first arrived, there was a Jobstown trial. Um, oh, yes, of course. Yeah. And ah. like I had just moved here and you'd be worried that your partner is going to go to jail. You yeah. know, <laughs> just I was like, oh, God, what do I do if that happens? You know, so I was concerned about that and, and involved in that. Um, but also I was really concerned about just integrating into Irish society and getting a job. And it's it's really, really hard. I think you just have no sense of it until you actually have to do it. Um, climate scientists are not just like, you know, advertised for. And also climate scientists all have a, a certain expertise. You're not just a climate scientist and you just know everything and you can go apply for any climate science job. You have specific expertise. And mine is microfossils. And people don't really use them up here. It's too far north. Um, so I actually got a job working at a hotel cleaning rooms. Um, funnily enough, I was like, oh, I like to clean. I'll go clean some rooms. You've no clue what's involved in that or the backbreaking work, yeah. awful working conditions and all of that. But the really interesting thing was like um, it was an eye opener in like the potential to organize the sector. Um, and so for a brief moment, I was part of an organizing drive within my workplace and, you know, fighting a really awful manager. And um, so I got a really good experience in that. And um, that was interesting. So I worked there for a while and then, you know, I was always looking for jobs that I could take on. Um, and, you know, it's difficult, looked for science communication jobs. And I got involved working at this place called Explorium um, in Sandyford. It's awful. Um, <laughs> and then I worked at Airfield, which is an organic farm in Dundrum, Um and actually, I met people there that got involved in Extinction Rebellion and got involved in Extinction Rebellion because of friends that I made with people there. Um, and so finally got a chance to like join the environmental movement, which was just kicking off again with Ireland. Um, and that was really exciting. I mean, the meetings that we were attending at that time before the pandemic were 100 plus people, mostly young people, very radical anti-capitalists, you know. You know, I would have made some connections with some scientists here who are aware of like the work that I would have done. Um, so I would have worked with like um, deep sea sediment cores and extracting the microfossils from them to kind of look at how the ocean temperature has changed, how much ice is on land and things like that. And so there are some scientists within Ireland who do that and understand that I would have networked with them. Um, but it's hard to get into that whenever there aren't even enough jobs for young people who get degrees here in Ireland to stay in Ireland and work in Ireland, let alone somebody, you know, immigrating here. But it does sound like for a for PBP and for the Rise Network to have somebody in house who's actually a climate scientist actually seems to me to be something that's incredibly useful as a resource for the left, for them, and but more broadly for the left in Ireland, you know, to have that level of expertise in house seems incredibly useful. Yeah. Um, I don't want to take anything away from the people within these organizations, but I, I'm not going to lie. I've been pressing on every organization that I've been involved in since I've joined 10 years ago that environment, 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 climate change, biodiversity, we need to pay attention to these things. They're central. Um, and that kind of, you know, developing towards an eco-socialist understanding of, you know, capitalism uh, and understanding like the totality of capitalism's exploitation and expropriation of nature and people and all of that. Um, 
it has been an interesting journey. Um, one that I wasn't the only one initiating, but I definitely would have been pushing on that um, in a big way. Yeah, definitely. You mentioned Extinction Rebellion. What's your perspective of that as something that links into the left? And in a sense, and I don't mean this in an opportunistic way, but, you know, the potential for that. I mean, do you think the left pays enough attention to Extinction Rebellion or do you think the left is a bit sort of hands off and uh -uh, don't want to go there kind of? And I think the left in Ireland um, is divided on that question. So it was a it was an issue that we raised in the debate that we had. Those of us that founded Rise within the Socialist Party was you've got this movement that's kicked off. It's drawing in thousands of people, um, and one of their aims is to get three percent of the population to rebel. So you know whatever you think about their overall strategy and their analysis or whatever, like they're trying to do what we're trying to do, and you know there's a lot of young people getting involved. So we should be involved in this and help build it and put forward our ideas, but also learn from that experience. And that would have been something that we would have tried to make the case for within the Socialist Party. Um, and to the credit of the SWN and People for Profit, they were already involved. When I showed up at those meetings, they were already there and they had been there since the very beginning. Um, and, you know, we're talking with other activists and putting forward ideas and helping to build Extinction Rebellion. Um, I was part of helping to form an Extinction Rebellion trade union caucus, and we organized events during Re Rebel Week. So some of the left, I think, looked at it and thought, you know, oh, this is still very middle class. Look at their strategy. That's stupid. Kind mm -hmm. of sitting on the sidelines. And maybe I'm unfairly mischaracterizing some of the left's position, but like, that's how it seemed to me, you know? Um, and I do feel to PVP's credit, they didn't see it that way. Um, at least the activists from PVP, PVP's not a monolith. They didn't, they didn't see that you should just kind of stand on the sidelines. They were like, no, people are moving into action and I want to be there, um, to help kind of point it in the direction that I think is most effective. And then I also want to learn from that. Um, and so we, you know, when we left the Socialist Party, we, said as a group, we want to be involved in this. And we, we were involved in that. Um, so I think, you know, some of the activities of Extinction Rebellion in London in, in particular, like people gluing themselves to the tube and like, you know, the, the action here in, in Ireland, in Dublin, where um, they went into a Penny's in order to highlight fast fashion. They also went into a Brown Thomas, but that's not what the media is going to cover, you know? Um, like things like that, I think the left take and they're just like, see, like, this is anti-working class and, meh, you know, rather than going to the meeting where there was a meeting to discuss that action and say, this wasn't effective. Let's not do this ever again. We need to build a broad movement. Um, you know, they're not there for those conversations and they're not there to help people that are just new to activism learn how to build that movement. Like the question that I had at the beginning of my journey of becoming an activist was, how do I build these movements? Um, and I think at the left, who reads loads of history, which is super important, and you know, learns Marxist theory and seeks to apply it to today, thinks that like just standing on the sidelines as activists make the mistakes, of course they're gonna make those mistakes, um, and doesn't seek to be a part of the conversations to correct them and avoid them, then they're not really relevant, um, I don't think. They, they can become a block, unfortunately. Um, yeah. That's that's really interesting analysis. It's really it's very convincing. I think it's very plausible. But yeah, 
people are going to make mistakes as activists. Always. Yeah. Inevitable. Yeah. yeah. If you're going to act in the world, you're going to make yeah. mistakes. You know, you're going to say the wrong thing. You're going to upset people that you didn't understand their situation. You know what I mean? And so you just have to yeah. keep trying better. And I think we kind of keep half, we have to have that attitude. And, and I think it can be hard. Um, I will say in Extinction Rebellion meetings, you know, is it a bit frustrating that there isn't democracy in, in the way that we would think about it and that there's a debate and then there's a vote and then we kind of move forward. Instead, it's very horizontal. And it reminded me a lot of Occupy Wall Street where there's consensus um, decision making and just it leaves open the room for the most active people to be the ones deciding the actions and then, but that impacts the whole of the group. And, you know, there can be frustrations. And if you've been active long enough, you will have been involved in more than one movement that had the same kind of, you know, bits and starts and questions. And I can imagine if you've been around longer than me, <laughs> that you were really frustrated and you really want to like advance things. But I think there is no like skipping steps. There is no, you know, you've, you've got to go along with people in that journey um, and also not see it in some patronizing way of like, oh, I'm going to hold your hand while we go in the right direction. It's more of, you know, I'm going to go along this path with you um, and tell you where I think we can go. That'll be an easier path. Um, but I want to hear your ideas too. You were part of a group that left the Socialist Party. I mean, just broadly speaking, why? And, and then, and maybe as interesting, what framed Rise as the solution or at least the next structure that you felt was the way forward? Um, so I think it was in late 2018, you know, a big debate broke out within the CWI with Ireland at the center of it, the Socialist Party. Um, and it was kind of around how to approach the women's movement and how to put forward a socialist program within the women's movement. Um, and a lot came out of that debate. Like that was the question at first, but then like, it's like a Pandora's box. You opened it and there was all kinds of debate swirling around, lots of questions, lots of differences. Um, and I have to say, unfortunately, like we left in 2019, mostly because we just felt the atmosphere was bad. Um, the party was not used to debates. The CWI was clearly not used to the kind of debates that are necessary to kind of grapple with the big challenges we have today. They just weren't. Um, they had no experience with organized factions within the Socialist Party within Ireland. And that meant that common work just was not possible. Um, you know, and so we decided we had to leave in order to continue to be active, in order for the Socialist Party activists continue to be active, you know? Mm -hmm. They're genuine people too, and I'm sure they were annoyed with us being there and raising differences. Um, so we launched Rise in late September. Rise is actually two years old, um, just the 30th of September. Um, we had lots of discussions actually about how to present ourselves. Once we left, it's funny, once you kind of leave something, you know, there's a scariness associated with it because there's a certainty associated with an organization that you didn't launch or build or whatever. You're stepping into a framework. You're stepping mm. into an analysis and an understanding and a certain program. Um, but when you decide to leave, you can kind of step out and be like, oh, crap, what do we do now? You know, but you're not leaving with nothing. You know, you would have gained an education. You had experiences. And a lot of the activists that left had a lot of experience. We had TD with us. That was very helpful. Um, but we had a lot of discussions about how to present ourselves. You know, what are we trying to build here? You know, how are we going to recruit people to ourselves? What are we looking to do to help build the left in Ireland? The socialist movement, the environmental movement, all of that. How are we going to do that? And how 
um, are we going to distinguish ourselves and explain why we're some separate little group? You know, why did we split? Um, and I think also the question for us was how do we build our organization differently than what we had experienced in the Socialist Party and that whole like really awful debate that happened that ended up splitting the CWI in lots of different parts. And I think if you asked any member of RISE um, what sets us apart from other revolutionary socialist groups, they'll say two things. The first is eco-socialism and the second is democracy. Um, and I think the eco-socialism, again, was something that came from watching Extinction Rebellion develop and being activists who had been in and around the environmental movement in different ways and seeing the centrality of the environmental crises that we're facing, the climate crises, the biodiversity crises, and wanting to apply Marxism to that or learn what Marxism had been applied to that question. Um, and so we you know, came upon eco-socialism and eco-Marxism and really started to learn a lot and study. And so that became a core part of us. And I mean, you can see it in our logo. There's a green leaf, you know, um, and Rise's name, Revolutionary Internationalist Socialist Environmentalists, was a key thing for us. Um, but the democracy part of it is really important for us because we do feel that there can be on the left a lot of, we already know the answers. And we just need to tell the new people what the answers are. And then we get them to say those answers. And then they turn outward and they talk to the working class and they tell the working class the way. And we just go. And again, that's really a crude mischaracterization. But I do feel that that's the experience that I had. It's the role that I played as well, you know, as an organizer. And there is a certain like comfort in that of like, okay, I got some answers, you know, and applied, they worked. We elected a social city council member. We want a $15 minimum wage, you know? So it's, I don't want to downplay it or minimize it as if these organizations have no impact. They do. And social party here, the water charges movement, the repeal movement, I, I don't want to, yeah, I don't want to discount that work at all. But if we are going to grow our influence, we cannot continue to stifle differences of opinion and the democratic debate, the vigorous democratic debate that is necessary to figure out what is the way forward, what is to be done, what's the next step. And if you want to tell a movement this is the next step, you need to be a part of it. So democracy is a central thing for us. Um, and, you know, from the very small thing about like how we do our agendas and things like that to the big things of like, how do we discuss what is the state today? Um, you know, we just had a big discussion about degrowth ideas within RISE and what do we think are the strengths? What are the weaknesses? And this is not something where you've got people that have 20 years of Marxist understanding under their belt and experiences in the movement telling the newer members in RISE, this is our line. Um, it's more of let's explore this stuff together. Um, this is what I get from it. What do you get from it? Yeah. Did you come to a conclusion about degrowth, by the way, or is that still a work in progress? No, we, you know, we didn't. Um, and part of it is just, you know, when you're coming into a new arena, uh, yeah. arena may not be the right word, but into a new field in which you're not, the CWI, in my view, did not take the environmental question very seriously. It's not something that it read and studied a lot. And it's, and certainly within the CWI, you, you wouldn't have read contemporary Marxist um, theories or contemporary Marxist analysis on the women's movement, on LGBTQ movements, or any of that stuff. And so once we left, we started to read and learn. Um, and it's the same with degrowth. You know, degrowth was a question that kept coming up within 
the eco-socialist material we're reading. We don't know enough about it, you know. Um, this, it's kind of an umbrella term, just lots underneath of it. Um, so in the discussion, I think for us, it's mostly a question of um, how does this help us understand the crisis that we face today with very little time left? And also, how do we use that understanding to build a working class and oppress people's movement? Um, you know, with the word degrowth, what is it? help or not help with? And then also what's the content behind it? And I'd say most of us in RISE, I, I don't want to speak for everybody, but for mm. me at least, degrowth is not a really great word <laughs> because yeah. there is a growth ideology that GDP growth equals jobs. GDP, you know, not growing equals recession equals you lose your home, you lose your job, all of that. And we're not going to be able to get rid of that ideology by just being like, no, no, growth, growth doesn't equal these things. We're just too small. Um, but the content behind a lot of the left-wing degrowth ideas um, and, and framing of the whole problem that we face, to me, there's a lot we can gain from that in terms of, for example, um, you know, if you only have a certain number of years in order to decarbonize your economy, well, you can't grow every aspect of your economy. You need to replace renewable energy. And the data centers actually in Ireland are a good example of this. You can't have the data centers gobbling up all of our energy and the growth of the tech sector there if you need to decarbonize. You're going to make people like pay in order to have data centers here. So grow, degrow, it, it depends on the industry, um, but it definitely reframes the question a little bit, I think, for us. And then personally, for me, the international aspect of extractivism and the violence unleashed on people and land and water, um, that all that renewable energy, all that technological progress in order to get us out of the climate crisis relies on. And the degrowth, the left-wing degrowth um, uh, milieu, all of them, they heavily focus on that. And again, it reframes things for you a bit. Um, so I think there's a lot to gain from that, but I, I wouldn't be an advocate of the word now. Rice ultimately took the decision to uh, go into PVP as a network. Do you want to talk maybe a little bit about that and then move on to rupture, uh, the function of rupture and how that's used um, to meet these challenges and opportunities? Yeah, I mean, it was clear to us um, probably even before we left the Socialist Party that like PVP is the fastest growing radical party in Ireland. Um, it's best position to grow in the period ahead, in my view, particularly when Sinn Féin goes into government and fails to deliver. I mean, see what Pierce Doherty said, like just where he commented about how, oh, you know, we're not going to be going after, you know, big business. And oh, yeah. 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 Um, signaling to the capitalist class will be safe hands. Um, so it, in my view, it is best positioned. But how it presents itself to working class people, um, to small farmers, to small fishers, all of that really, really matters. And so the question for us when we were looking at PPP when we left um, was kind of, is PPP a project solely of the SWN? Is it under their control? Is it firmly in their grip? Or is it a space where we can make a contribution? Is it a space of lively and friendly debate? And we discussed with the SWN and other non-SWN PPP members for about a year after we launched ourselves. Um, and that also included not only discussions, but common work. 
with them, you know, in the doll, but also on the streets. And through that, we kind of worked together to agree a common vision of PVP that left room for debate about like PVP's development and how to build it and all of that. I wouldn't say like we agreed, oh, this is the way to develop it. You know, there's still some room for debate there, but it also meant that common vision meant that we could have organized groupings within PVP. And that meant that RISE could join and stay organized as a network and that you could have other networks like this that we went as a network within PVP. And the red network is a network within PVP. So in, in our view, that's quite important because in order for PVP to reach its potential, to really grow in the period ahead, it means broadening it a little bit, you know, and um, having the debates with people who think we can just reform capitalism or that there's a parliamentary road to socialism or, you know, you we need to go into government with Sinn Féin. Some people think that, you know, I don't. I'm, I'm very much against that. It, it depends on program for me. And I don't think they'll agree a really radical program. Um, but I, I do think that that broadening out and that vision of PPP growing into that potential in that space. Um, and that being agreed was really, really important. And it's a step forward towards that broad mass workers party that we need here in Ireland. Um, and I also think it means that we have a better chance together to kind of grapple with all the social and ecological crises that are facing working, working and oppressed people. Um, you know, whether that's the housing emergency, the healthcare emergency, all of that. Um, yeah. And so ruptures position within all of that and us wanting to have this media project um, magazine and also the podcast to us is about contributing our ideas as well as um, kind of creating a space for others to bring their ideas into the conversation with us and also to have lively debate amongst the left about the way forward and you know how do we build PBP and within our pages you would have seen there's you know various contributions on the border poll and dealing with the question of United Ireland um so and for me like coming from America not a lot of experience with all of that um there's so much more for me to learn and I think for us like rupture we didn't want it to be like how a traditional socialist newspaper is just like your line your position you know, why would you create room for other people? Like you're meant to support your ideas. We don't want that, you know, not just because like, we don't think we've got ideas. We do. We have ideas about how to build PVP. We have ideas about building the socialist movement and the, and an eco-social strategy and all of that. Um, but we're tiny, you know, so we, we want to hear other people as well. Um, and we have the ambition that rupture isn't just like for people that are in PVP and like people that are already in an organized group or already clear that you join an organization. You know, we wanted to be picked up and read by people who are, you know, earlier in their journey towards politicization, as we talked earlier about my own journey. Um, you know, if there had been such a magazine and I had seen it, I'd probably pick it up and read it. And and if it said join, then, you know, maybe I would have joined her. If such a publication existed, I don't want to like make our magazine out to be like this big thing, but it, it makes a difference, I think. Um, so Rupture Magazine and Rupture Radio podcasts are both contributions from us to kind of say, you know, these are the things we think people should pay attention to. That's why it's an eco-socialist quarterly. Um, and obviously, as you know, not every article focuses on the environment, but we try to bring it in as part of like the question of housing. Well, what kind of housing? 
how are you going to build that housing? It's an environmental question too. Um, and we also, you know, we want to make sure that um, it reaches a very broad audience so that we can pull people into the conversation. And that's what we aim to do with it. And we hope that we are making that impact. It's hard to know, you know, you don't always get lots of people giving you feedback on it. So. Yeah, it's it's interesting because it's so um, the the form of it is so fascinating because it, it's you know it's really nicely designed and it's an interesting periodical because it's quite weighty actually. There's an awful lot in it in each issue. There's been five issues so far, but it's across it you've had I think Paul Murphy initiated a, a an article about a border poll, and then I think oh who was it? It was um, Kieran Mulholland, yeah, who got back on to, then I think in the next issue and then it was John Molyneux who got on and then in the most recent one I think it's uh, what Joe Duffy of uh, DCT or yeah DCTU and it's this sort of conversation that's been travelling across the length and you know the length of the actual existence of the periodical to date so there's this sort of sense of really big space and yet at the same time you have issues which then like the current one focuses very much on climate climate change climate collapse really but the previous one see was it the previous one which was focusing on transgender and marxism the previous one was that that definitely wasn't there um yeah. uh, there was an interview with the editors of transgender marxism each each issue is meant to have a theme section which is at the beginning um and very difficult to come up with a theme, I have to say. <laughs> Just, right. There's a lot to talk about. They don't always like come together in a certain theme. Yeah. Um, but issue four was about no going back. Oh, yeah. Oh, there's so many things you could talk about there. But like public transport was a big thing. So that was like the main featured article in housing. Um, but in the features, which is where the transgender Marxism um, uh, interview was there, like, yeah, there's so much in the magazine. It's kind of hard to choose like, oh, no, these are going to be your theme and these are going to be the feature. But so it's interesting to hear you say, actually, that's the one that stood out for me. Yeah, because um, it's long form. I think it's because it's longer form. And, you know, it's, I mean, it was interesting because in the current issue, there was another one, um, Dan O'Dwyer's piece mm -hmm. on eco-socialism strategies and tactics, which is also long form. So it does have like lots of things happening there. Do you feel, and you're, something you said, which kind of struck me a moment ago was you're saying that you're hoping this is going to reach a wider audience, obviously, this, say those in PPP, those in Rise Network, uh, those on the left. What's your feeling about how to do that? Like what's your, what are the strategies that you guys feel are the best ways forward to bring in a bigger audience who might traditionally be I mean, the form, as I was saying, the form is fantastic and it looks amazing. Is that, in a sense, maybe an unconscious way to produce something which is trying, which is making that very determined effort to say, right, we're moving just beyond leftists, you know, uh, further leftists and move it into a different space as well, or at least have it have aspects of it move into that space? Well, I think, like you mentioned, the form really matters. And I'm not sure if that is paid enough attention to by left-wing organizations because there is a focus and rightly so on the politics what are you going to say so you spend a huge amount of time on what you're going to say and very very little on how are you going to present this um and i don't know the presentation really really matters it has always mattered to me um i've always like banged on about it wherever i've been and um, doesn't mean that i'm the greatest graphic artist or anything like that um, and just to say, like the magazine itself was designed by a graphic artist, a professional graphic artist, and they gave us this template 
beautiful cover and then I choose all the imagery. Um, and that, you know, is a collective thing. Um, but the form of it really matters because it either is something that's inviting and that's something that graphic artists know and study and understand. And, you know, like, do you use a sans serif font? Do you use a serif font? Or, you know, how do you com combine things? All of that really matters. And I think the left too often is just like, I don't know, we just slap something together and to our eye, it looks nice, but it like fails on a whole number of like very basic graphic design 101 things, you know? Um, so I think that matters because if you look at Rupture, it doesn't look like your typical left-wing magazine and that it doesn't like scream at you like revolution now. And the reason I think that matters is because people are not for revolution now. Not yet. Mm. <laughs> I want them to be. Um, yeah. So I kind of want to reach them where they are right now um, and get them to read the articles and even the articles themselves. Unlike articles you'll read in a socialist newspaper that always end with, that's why we need a socialist revolution. Um, you know, that's why we need to build a revolutionary party. They always end like that. Every article is like a little leaflet, you know? Each article that we try to present is an analysis um, to say something about the capitalist system that can help us understand what we're facing. You know, for the themes section, that's mostly what we're trying to do. And in the featured as well, like we're also trying to present other aspects of capitalist society and the fight back against it. Um, and in the what is to be done section, the strategy section, there we are trying to say something about, well, that's why you should join the socialist organization, you know, but not in the way that is traditionally done. We are trying to do it at, you know, um, a more popular way. Yeah. Yeah. So I presume then it was a conscious decision to have the podcast as well as a sort of like a sort of a multi-track approach. No, you know, the funny thing is it wasn't a oh. conscious decision. Yeah. Right. OK. I think there would have been some people within Rise who would have been really eager about a podcast and less eager about a magazine. Yeah. I'd be eager about a magazine because I like to write and I think writing forces you to think about what you're mm -hmm. going to say and how you're going to say it. Not that like speaking out loud yeah. doesn't, it does. Um, I just think it's different. It challenges you in different ways. The podcast actually was something that just started from live videos during the pandemic. And, you know, Paul and I could be near each other because we were in the same household. And so there was, you know, live videos, I think two of them, and they were just unsustainable. They just required way too much preparation and work. And so the idea was, well, why don't we do a podcast? Um, and the podcast was originally called Left Inside, kind of like left, and then you're inside because of the pandemic when we were all locked in. Um, and it was popular enough, and we had enough members who were like, you know what, I feel really like that this is something I want to contribute my time to. Um, you know, you can't force people to work on things that don't really feel in their heart that they want to build, you know? And I have to try to allow people the space to develop the media projects that they think are purposeful. And we had some Rise members who really felt that they built this podcast. And I think we're now at like 73 episodes. You know, it's just impressive what they do, you know? Yeah. Absolutely. You, you mentioned the, um, I'm just sort of mapping those, those two things together, I suppose. You mentioned the kind of interest in democratically exploring ideas within Rise. And then, of course, the fact that Rupture itself is rather broader than here's Rise's position. It, it's it's unusual, I suppose, on the left to be relatively open about your own exploration within the organization. Um, do you find that, that consciously doing that in the publication is 
a risk, I suppose, or? Yeah, I mean, there's some risk, I think, because we've got a TV position. And so, you know, if the media really wanted, they could be like, Diana O'Dwyer called for this, you know, or Jespier wrote that, or Nicole McCarthy wrote that. What do you have to say about that? That's your publication. So there's always a risk there. Um, but I think in, res in respect to like the articles written by RISE members, RISE, even though there's really friendly debate and um, vigorous debate really, you know, about different things when we discuss the state or we discuss degrowth or whatever, um, there is a real coherence to what we think we should be saying in terms of eco-social strategy and how we think we should be presenting ourselves such that like, even though our members, they, they write their article, um, there's not a huge amount of heavy editing or like, oh, politically, this isn't good. It just, I think the way we've built our organization is such that we are along a common path. And when people kind of write about the different things they want to write about, whether that's transport, it's drug decriminalization, that kind of thing, they're not veering so far off that path that other members are like, what the hell did they write, you know? Yeah, but if they yeah. did, then the space exists for them to say, I want to write a rebuttal. I don't really agree with that article, you know? And I think that's commonly understood, um, or at least it's reinforced all the time by me. You know, if you don't agree, this is how you disagree. This is, you know what I mean? Like we want people to understand there's a process and you can use it at any point to kind of say, hey, look, like I want to push back in the other direction. Yeah. It's interesting as well. Like you um, Obviously, there's the links with the with within PPP with the SWN. So you have SWN members writing in the magazine as in in the publication as well. But one thing that also strikes me is like it's very unashamedly a PPP publication. I mean, it's, it invites people at the back to join PPP. There's no kind of shirking around it, or you know, join Rise Network within. It's it's which is you know it's very impressive. It's sort of like it, it's very uh, inclusive. Where do you see it going next? I mean, what's your feeling about it? Is it a case of sustaining this at this point, or are there, you know, do you have ambitions further down the line in terms of? Because of course, it's it's also linked, as you say, to a TD and to a a political current uh, and to PBP, and so there's an interesting sort of tension, perhaps, between as you know, electoralism and the necessity for the left to become more electorally successful under the PPP banner in particular. Um, and then beyond that, also this uh, consideration of uh, issues. And is there tension there? I mean, has have you yet had a point where you thought to yourself, OK, now we have to look at something more electoral or something. And how do we incorporate this into rupture? Mm -hmm. That's an interesting question, because I think when we initially con conceived the magazine, we thought about what could we sell on the doorsteps? Um, and I think the editorial board, of which I, I've been a member the entire time, was like, OK, yeah, but we also have bigger ambitions. Um, and so I think when we came to the, you know, the rise meeting with like the design, which has no name on the cover, um, and we're asking a tenor for it. You were just like, uh, I don't know about this, Do you know? Um, this seems very academic, was what some people felt. Um, and this doesn't seem like, you know, your average working class, you know, woman who maybe was active in the water charges movement and in repeal, but is less active today. Like maybe they won't want to buy it. Um, and I think that that's, that's an understandable concern because we want working class people to read this, not just 
people that are like, you know, going to college and are just now becoming active. Um, but I think that's also a misunderstanding of what like working class people are really looking for. Um, and, you know, within our editorial board, we had a number of people that were just like, no, we should not assume that um, working class people don't want art. We should not assume that working class people can't understand, you know, that this is a political magazine that doesn't need to scream at you on the front cover what it is and what's inside of it. That doesn't mean that it isn't harder to sell. Um, it is. But actually at demos, we were we were wondered about the 10 euro price tag. Um, and that's just because kind of what it costs to produce. Um, yeah, it's like it's perfect balance, really nice. It's just, yeah, it's really um it's expensive to produce uh, because of the, the type of printing that's done to be environmentally friendly, the graphic art, all of that. Um, but we found actually that nobody was like, oh, that's a bit, that's a bit much. Nobody said that. Everybody yeah. was like, Grand. you know, that's fine. You know, you open it up like it's it's beautiful. And our members that were heavily on the Debenhams pickets, like Debenhams workers bought it. I'm not saying that they read it cover to cover or anything like that. But I'm hoping that they read an article or two, and I'm hoping that its beautiful design enticed them to read it. Um, you know, if it's sitting on a coffee table, you'd pick that up. But if it was sitting on a coffee table and it had, you know, a very obvious socialist, you know, branding on it with red flags and whatever, like then your average person who doesn't see themselves, doesn't identify that way, may not pick it up. Um, and I think the the electoral push there is less so for us because it's not I don't know it's not really aimed it's not aimed to be like a tool to build up a base of support within Dublin Southwest it's a tool for us to kind of think about what's happening in the world today and to debate that openly and to try to appeal to working class people to also be a part of that conversation, to buy the magazine, support the magazine. Um, it's mostly a self-supporting enterprise, um, Rupture Magazine and podcast. Um, the podcast gets Patreons um, who contribute monthly to it. And in that respect, like it's not so much tied to the TD position that if we lost it, we would lose our ability to produce the magazine or the podcast or anything like that. And so there isn't a certain pressure in that respect. Um, I think we've got 200 plus subscribers. Um, and I'm sure we'll sell out of this issue. We've sold out of every issue except issue two. And that's mostly just because lockdown and challenges of trying to sell a magazine um, online. Yeah. How do you think things go from here and now with uh, the pandemic abating to a degree? Where do you see things happening next? And where do you see rupture inside that and rise and PVP? Yeah, I mean, there was that massive housing demo a few weeks ago, right in town. It was such a disappointment that the trade unions called off their demo on the 2nd of October because I just think it could have been a 10,000 plus demo, maybe even bigger. I, I don't know. There's such a clamor now. It's hitting all areas of society. And we have been wanting to have a debate about housing within the pages of Rupture rather than just saying what we think. You know, we'd like, for example, it'd be good to have Owen O'Brien say what he thinks really should be done. And then, you know, a response from us or us positively putting forward our program and him positively putting forward his program so that people can say, oh, you know, I'm reading these both and this one makes more sense to me. Um, I think when the movements pick back up, we would like 
them to feature within the magazine in a real and live way. And that, um, and not always like us saying what we think, but other people saying, we need to pay attention to this aspect of it. Um, and I think housing is so obviously the one living here for four years and watching like fits and starts of different aspects of the housing movement, you know, with Apollo House and Take Back the City and, you know, Facebook groups popping up all over the place organically. And then this big protest, um, you can imagine there'll be something big, but it's just hard to see. Um, interestingly, like now that we're able to go to demos and like have it with us and sell it in person, it has been interesting to see some people already know what it is. Oh. Um Ireland's so small that that can happen. <laughs> that would happen in the U.S. Um, that if you went to a demo that, you know, people would be like, oh, I know what that is. Um, so that's the positive thing about being in a smaller country and part of a small left um, that's growing. But yeah, so that's good. And, and we really hope that it can grow in that respect. But there's always a capacity issue with media projects. You know, for us, we are not a, a media house. You know, we're a revolutionary organization trying to build PVP, as you said, we are, we're very clear, you need to join PVP. Um, we're here to build PVP. And we have ideas about how, how to build PVP. If you agree with our ideas about how to build PVP, join PVP and then join us. But like build, building PVP is foremost, like the main thing we want to do in order to strengthen the housing movement, the environmental movement, the healthcare movement, all of those things. Listen, Jess, thanks a million. Really, really appreciate you coming and talking to us. Yeah, Thanks very much for having me on. I enjoyed the conversation.